Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. Being an upland hunter in the south nowadays unfortunately means a lot of travel to try and find birds for my dogs. This means it's even more important that my map scouting is reliable to justify the effort. This is where Onyx comes in. I can honestly say that Onyx directly impacts the level of success I find on my trips. Whether it's the private versus public land boundaries, the expanding number of unique layers and features by state, or the 3D mapping capabilities, my initial step in planning my hunting trip starts with Onyx. To know where you're going, you have to first know where you stand. Check out Onyx Hunt Maps and use code G. GDIY 20 at checkout to save 20%. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. They're, they're just dogs, right? And and you can try your best to make everything happen perfectly the way you had it planned. But something's always going to go wrong and it's not going to go as planned. And you just have to let it go. One thing we all love to do with our dogs is hit the road and go on new adventures. In order for that to happen, we have to be able to safely and efficiently travel with our dogs. Dakota 283 is dedicated to building unparalleled pet protection and tailgate lifestyle products for you and your best friends. Their one-piece roto-molded kennels have many options such as the Hero Series for military-grade crates, T1 low-profile kennels that will fit truck beds with tonneau covers, and their most popular G3 Series that's available in any size you'll need. Dakota not only offers many different sizes and styles of kennels, they also offer products and accessories to help with food and water transport, truck bed storage, and even grooming stations. Have a new puppy and only want to buy one kennel instead of buying multiple ones as they grow? Look at the Forever Kennel Insert Divider that gives you the ability to buy a kennel now and adjust the size inside as needed. No matter what you need to get you on your next adventure with your dog, Dakota has it for you. Check them out now at Dakota283.com. Your new 283 lifestyle is just one click and free shipping away. And welcome back to another exciting edition of the GDIY podcast. With me, as always, is Joe Lamberson. Joe, how are you doing? Nick, I'm doing well. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm living the dream as always, buddy. I'm not going to steal that from you this week. (laughs) Good, good. Uh, So how was the drive back? I know you just got back from Florida. Uh, Didn't go through too many storms, did you? No, you know, uh, glad we have a house um, after the the floods in Nashville. Um, that was a little little scary, especially when we we text our neighbor and our neighbor didn't answer, and we're like, oh no. Oh, <laughs> but yeah, no. Luckily, yeah. Um, I know uh, some people had it pretty rough, but uh, it was just just a little wet in our neck of the woods. Um, but yeah, first first yeah. long trip with the with the baby and. Um, Glad to be back in the great state of Tennessee, man. Yeah, it got it got a little soggy down here. Uh, 
It's uh, man, the fields flooded down here. You know, I, I live in the nursery capital of the world, mm. McMinnville, Tennessee, wow. and uh, these these nurseries flooded. Man, it, I was working out in the yard yesterday, and I look up, and there's like a bald eagle across the uh, across the field chasing a flock of teal for wow. like two minutes. I got to sit there and watch it duck and dive after that, and then I'm like, you know what? I hadn't walked back to the swamp in a in a few days, especially before the rain, let me go back there. And I walked back there and it was covered up in ducks. Wow. And it was just, I mean, the water level rose and I mean, there were, there were teal, there were, uh, mallards and a, a flock of Canada geese out there. And I'm just sitting here like, man, where were y'all during hunting season? This is ridiculous. So we gotta, we gotta figure out a way to flood your swamp <laughs> during season. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it seems like it's going to be uh, contingent upon the water level, which you know this this time of the year is when I was looking at it last year before I bought the place, and the water was up like it is now, and it was covered up in ducks. And we had a little bit of ducks during the hunting season; it was mainly wood ducks here and there. But uh, once it got a hard freeze, they they kind of you know bailed out on me, and wasn't the greatest duck season out here on. But you know for for how far i had to travel and how far I, how hard i had to work to get out to the blind i guess you know it's a give and take right yeah not too bad basically stepping out of your bed in the morning and, and walking <laughs> into your little blind exactly so uh you want to tell everybody about what we have for them this week or you want me to take a stab at it nick you go, you go take a stab at it man all right. Uh, so we we do get a few requests here and there uh, talking about gun dogs outside of the world of NABDA and even just meat dogs because mm-hmm. you know let's face it that's what we primarily focus on that's what we're familiar with is the NABDA game and and or just the hunting side of things and so we do get a few people what else can I do with these hunting dogs and uh, one of the things that's been around for decades and it's very you know it, it's rich in tradition and has a lot of uh, just richness on on the history of it is dog trials, field trials, right? And so that's one thing we have not touched on a lot here. You know, the only trials we've really touched on is a little bit on shoot to retrieve trials, but mm-hmm. we've mainly focused on hunt tests. So uh, Angie Barron of Elite Gun Dogs uh, up in Canada, she recommended me reach out to Steve Short and Arwen Dab and talk to them because they they do a little hunt test but they primarily focus and enjoy field trials and more specifically horseback trials arwen does a little bit more walking trials Mm -hmm. Uh, but they also focus in on wild bird hunting because i wanted to talk to trialers that actually wild bird hunt too because it seems like you kind of find one or the other you find the wild bird hunters or you find the trialers and we talk about that within the episode not to give it away but we we talk about how it's kind of a misconception and, and or a myth that you can't be successful at both wild bird hunting and trials. So it's kind of an interesting conversation. We step out of our comfort zone and uh, jump into a world that me and you really aren't familiar with, really. Yeah. As I was editing the uh, the podcast, it was interesting to listen to you and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, makes sense. And I was like, oh man, <laughs> Nick actually, uh, this is the first time Nick has heard some of this stuff. So this is, <laughs> if Nick's learning stuff, that's a good thing, man. Man, I always got stuff to learn. <laughs> but yeah, they did. It, it's a, it was an interesting conversation. I love jumping out of my comfort zone and, and really learning about uh, elements of the gun dog world that I'm not familiar with. And 
the trial world while while I've been to, as you'll hear in the episode one, uh, since I've been in this world, it's, um, you know, one is doesn't do it justice. There's so much more to it than just attending one bird dog trial and, uh, and, and really getting the feel for it. But, uh, I hope you guys enjoy. I, I think it's a, it's an interesting concept and one we haven't touched on enough in my opinion. Hey, well, I know we just mentioned Angie Barron, so I'm going to put in a segue here. And uh, talk about our reviews. Okay. Have at it. You're probably saying, how does Angie Barron (laughs) relate to our reviews? (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you right now. Uh, So this is from Zach Yindra. um, And he says, excellent show. Maybe my favorite podcast, which is, there's a lot of good podcasts out there. (laughs) Yeah, there is. Joe Rogan's pretty good. I got to cut you off, though. Did you just make another foul up Zach Yendra? Do you think maybe it's Zach E. Indra? Like maybe it's Spanish? Zach and Indra? Well, the I is not capitalized. Okay. So, it would. I mean, it, and yeah. the Y is. <laughs> All right. Hey, this is my, this is my segment. Wait, I've buddy. had it. I've had it. You go for it. <laughs> he says, loving the show up in Vermont. Brought home my second setter on Saturday. I knew I liked this guy already. Uh, and this is his first puppy actually. And I've been, uh, well, he's been listening to the frequently to bone up on his knowledge prior to bringing the boy home. Puppy series was great. And I've been sharing those episodes in the three first three episodes with everyone who will be in proximity to the dog's development. I've been in contact with Angie Barron already about helping along the way. There it is. Started listening about a year ago. And so glad I did. This is an awesome resource for DIY trainers. Keep up the exceptional work. And that, was left on Tuesday. So I just picked up from the top of the barrel. That was actually review number 248. 248. Wow. So well, we're, we're almost there. Back and or Indra, whoever's listening, uh, feel free, hit us up. We'll, we'll shoot you a sticker and for leaving us a review. We appreciate that. It means the world to us. And uh, yeah, man, it's, it's stuff like that that keeps us going, just putting out quality information, whether it's, you know, it, it's arguably good information coming from me, but more so uh, our guests and especially the regulars like Angie. You know, they, exactly. they just keep bringing the fire and putting out good information for everybody. Uh, speaking of more information, uh, I do need to do a little bit of housekeeping. We do have uh, the training camp coming up in mm-hmm. about a month, right? Uh, or under a month now. God, time sneaks up, sneaks up on you. Yep. So we actually had a guy sign up for the training camp all the way from Canada. He was going to come down for our training camp. And he said at the time that if the borders weren't open for travel due to the virus, that he was just going to donate his slot to somebody else to, to take advantage of and be able to attend. Well, the, the, uh, the borders have not opened yet. So he, he emailed me and said, go ahead and let's find a, another suitable candidate to uh, take his spot. He's donating it. He's not asking for his money back. So it's very generous of him. His name mm-hmm. is Craig McIntyre from Canada. And, uh, you know, he, he just said, let's find somebody that would get the most out of it and bonus points to the person if they have a Bishla and, <laughs> and also a first responder during this uh, pandemic. So um, this week, we are going to open it up to our Patreon patrons. And, uh, so if you're interested that literally it's a free slot, all you have to do is get there to Lillington, North Carolina over at Scott's at Rusty Guns Kennels. 
Um, just let me know. Message me, email me. The first Patreon patron that wants it and signs up for it, it it's it's going to be yours. You have one week, Patreon patrons, and then I'm opening it up to everybody else. We're going to try and find somebody that needs this course, wants this course, and is going to benefit from this course because you're about to get a crash course throughout an entire weekend from better trainers than I ever hoped to be. And you're going to get some quality information and some good food and some good ugly dog whiskey and, and all that good stuff. Uh thrown a lot of swag our way to give away. Dakota 283 is giving away a kennel. There's a, there's a lot of stuff going on at this, uh, this weekend. So uh, be sure to hit us up. Patreon patrons, you have one week. The clock starts now, and then next week we're opening it up to everybody else. So, Nick, if I'm a paramedic with a Vishla, can I go and sign up for Patreon right now and be entered in? <laughs> if you're a paramedic with a Vishla because Craig requested that and you're not a Patreon patron, hit me up and you get the slide. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> I just hooked someone up. Yeah, that's what that's how we're gonna do it. So, uh, Joe, you know, it, it, it's one of those. I had actually two good tips of the week lined up, but man, we already hit ten minutes, so we're just gonna go ahead and cut to the to cut to the meat and get to Steve and Arwen talking about field trials and all that fun stuff. And I'm gonna save the tips of the week uh, for next week, and then you know maybe I'll come out with two tips next week. Who knows? Oh, or maybe you could try the tips and see which one is the best. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's just like Bridget said on last week, chew up the meat, spit out the bones, right? Hey, let's end it at that. Absolutely. We get asked all the time what the most important thing to consider is when training and living with a hunting dog, and they're often surprised when they hear us answer with proper nutrition. It's pretty obvious when you think about it, though. It doesn't matter how well the dog is trained if it doesn't have the right fuel. The saying garbage in, garbage out rings true in dog nutrition. Yukonuba's premium performance lineup goes beyond just protein and fat with a number of different formulas designed to fuel your dog's specific activity level while supporting their recovery and optimizing their nutrient delivery. The proof is in the pudding, or lack thereof, when you make the switch to Yukonuba. You'll see immediate results in your dog's energy level and drive. They have a formula for every type of dog from your hardest working dog in the field to your laziest retired dog on the couch. Head on over to yukanubasportingdog.com to find the right formula for your hunting partner. Make the switch today and let Yukonuba fuel your dog so you can focus on what you and your dog actually love to do, work. Picture this. You just finished a long day's hunt or a long day in the training field grooming your next champion. You've run through your entire string of dogs in anticipation for the next fall. You think the day's over. It's not, though. Your day's not over until you let that ugly dog hunt. No hunting or training session is complete without capping it off with one of the spirits from Ugly Dog Distillery. They're Michigan-raised and purebred handcrafted spirits. They have everything you need from vodka and gin to your more traditional after-hunt choice Kentucky bourbon. Head on over to UglyDogDistillery.com to check availability within your state. And if you have an upcoming event that's alcohol-friendly, then be sure to reach out to us and see if we can add another ugly dog to the lineup. We'll tell you right now, we aren't much on flavored whiskeys, but you have to try their peanut butter whiskey. Unlike other peanut butter whiskeys out there, Ugly Dogs is made with real Kentucky bourbon and not just grain alcohol with syrup. So after your next hunt or a long day of testing and you're trying to decide what to drink, reach for the bottle with Ruger, the German wire hair pointer on it. It was handcrafted by people just like us, dog people. Every adventure starts somewhere. Make sure yours includes an ugly dog at your side. Explore responsibly. All right, everybody. We are joined this week with Steve Short and Arwen Dab. How are you guys doing today? 
Uh, doing good. pretty good. So I was recommended to, or you guys were recommended to me to, uh, as good people to talk to about uh, field trial dogs and more specifically field trial dogs and how it relates to actually hunting dogs. Angie Barron was actually the one that recommended you guys. And so uh, we haven't touched a lot on field trials on this podcast so far where we've been more about hunt tests and more specifically NABDA. So, uh, I'm kind of excited to really touch on the subject with you and, and figure out how these field trials really relate to, to hunting dogs also. Okay. Sounds good. So go ahead and start just, you know, take turns, whoever wants to go first, introduce yourself and, and kind of break down your experience so far in the dog world. Okay. Uh, like I said, my name's Steve Short, and I've been involved with uh, the bird dog thing since uh, about 1984. That's when I got my first uh, German short-haired pointer. And it, I, I, when I first got the dog, all I really wanted it for was to go hunting. And, you know, you, you'd want to get it trained, and you, you join the local club, and the next thing you know, you're you know, come out and help us at the field trial and you go up to the, the field trial and well, this was kind of fun and you're doing it in the spring and the fall and, you know, kind of year round and, it, you know, it just kind of grows and uh, it takes a while to kind of learn the, learn what's going on. But, you know, it was just a whole lot of fun. So I just kept doing it, got another dog, did it some more. Yeah. Kept doing it and then bought horses and bought trailers and, <laughs> <laughs> so so the trials that really got you into the game what was the horseback trials or did you start off with walking trials of some sort uh no they were they were more or less walking trials when i started but you know the judges were all on horseback and we had some some of the trials were on horseback and some people had horses and back then we the club would rent horses and you could ride or walk whatever you preferred and a lot of people walked and some people rode. So it's really just individual preference then. Yeah. Yep. Well, fun deal. Arwen, how about you? What got you into the dog world? Well, I kind of grew up with German short haired pointers. So my family had them, my uncles had them, my dad had them. So we hunted with them. So when I was out on my own and able to that, obviously that was the only breed of dog I wanted. So I got my first one um, a friend of mine actually referred me to the breeder and it tur- I looked at the pedigree. It looked good. I didn't really know a lot about what I was getting. I didn't know what an all age dog was. So I went and got this puppy and just kind of snowballed from there. Um, I tried, I tried a bunch of different things in the dog world. I tried entering it in a, a dog show was the first thing I tried probably back in 1999 and, um, didn't really do too well. And of course, nobody will tell you that your, your field bred dog is not going to cut it in the show ring with a bigger <laughs> confirmation dogs. So I did that, um, did obedience and I came across a, a feral Miller video, um, before he got caught obviously and talking about field trials and that was, I wanted to do that. That was the, the thing for me. So I started off, I bred this dog And I started off going to a training day, which led to going down to the U.S. and spending a week training with a trainer. Um, And I tried a couple of hunt tests. 
and did fairly well at that. But I figured out pretty quickly, I liked the competitive aspect a lot more than, you know, just getting a ribbon for passing. So, yeah. So I entered my young dog in a derby and it was a pretty big derby stake. I think it was 20 dogs or so. And I got an award of merit and I was actually, my friends thought that was good, but I was mad because I thought I should have won or or done better than that. You know, I didn't know a lot about run. I just knew that my dog found a lot of birds. So I just started training and I went back and entered another derby stake and I won that one and just spent the winter training and entered my first broke dog stake before that dog was even two years old and got a placement. And then I was really hooked. Yeah. No, it sounds like it. I'm I'm glad you went there because I was just about to ask, you know, your experience in hunt tests as opposed to to field trials and really what kind of what what appeals to you on both of them, but you know, a lot of people like myself included, I'll be honest, is, you know, I'm a pretty competitive person by nature and I didn't want to mix my my love of the dog world with my competitive side, so I've kind of purposely stayed away from some of the trial scenes, but you kind of embraced it. You're all about it. You just got involved and and the competitive streak took over and so you just dove right in. Yeah, yeah. Well, and here in Canada, I went to some tests in Canada and the the GSP Club of Canada used to publish the scores and they add up the scores for the dogs and rank them. And I remember thinking like, why isn't my dog on the top of this? (laughs) And, you know, this was before I realized that, you know, it's not really meant to be competitive. It's just a testing venue and field trials are the real competition. So I, I still do the hunt test, but I definitely prefer the competition. Gotcha. So Steve, are you kind of in the same boat as that? Do you just prefer the trials over the hunt test or, or do you care either way? You just want to be out there with your dog. Yeah, I I prefer the trial. I prefer the trials, the overall aspect, the competitive thing. Like, I don't really do the test per se. Like, I've run dogs in them and entered them, especially like the junior dogs, just for something to do with the young dog. But mm-hmm. the, the higher levels, I just, I don't have a huge interest in, in doing that stuff just to pass a test, you know, like I I want my dog to be kind of a, you know, performing at the the highest level and, and winning like it's, you want the bragging rights. Well, I I don't really (laughs) care about the bragging rights. It's just, if you're going to do it, you just want to do it, you know, at the best level, like you know, you can go to all the weekend trials you want and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you know, and for us, and I'm sure Arwen's the same, it's all about getting to Eureka in October at nationals and, and, and going to the, to the big trials to, to see what you can do there. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, so, so you just mentioned that the nationals and, and Eureka and all that. So what circuits do you run? Do y'all, are y'all working on primarily just one circuit or do you kind of mix them all up and do all kinds of different trials? Well, we've, we've mixed up quite a bit. Like in Canada, we're pretty limited as to what we can do because there's only a few field trials a year. So we try to go to all of those. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we were going before COVID, we were going to the States uh, quite a few times each year. So generally we would go to a few horseback field trials in the spring. And then I would go in the summer. There's quite a few walking trials on the West coast. 
So I would go to those and it's, it's easy to do that. You don't have to drag horses along. Yeah. And then usually around August, September, the field trials start up again here. So we'd go to those and then back down to the U S for, to hit a few horseback fall trials and then on to Kansas and nationals. And we're, yeah. we're a little bit, you know, a little bit unlucky in where we live because, you know, in Canada, the, the trials, well, there's, there's a lot of good dogs up here and stuff like that, but it, it it's a fairly, you know, localized circle. It's a, small pond. It's, yeah, it's a smaller pond, you know, and it, and it, they don't qualify um, to, to get a placement in a trial up here. It doesn't necessarily qualify you to go to Kansas. So we have to go to the States just to get qualified. Gotcha. Um, and it, our closest, our closest event we can go to is, you know, like nine hours away hauling Ooh. horses and farther than that to walk. I and was about to say, if you're trying to qualify, that's a, that's a lot of windshield time right there. You really got to want it, especially you had that nine hours driving with a horse trailer and all that. Are, are y'all, are y'all traveling with your own horses everywhere? Or do you kind of have it set up now and networked enough to where you, you kind of have horses in different areas of the country with, with friends houses and stuff like that? No, it's all, we, we've got our own horses and we, we wow. load up and go and, and, um, you know, we're three days to get to Kansas and wow, three, three days to get home and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, the rest of the time we, most of the trials we go to for the AKC are in Oregon, Washington, Montana. Mm. That's the closest we can, we can do there. So, so we try to time it, you know, if we're, we look at the trial schedule and who's having what, and so there's a couple of clubs that might have like a, a, a midweek trial in between two weekends. So we'll maybe try to go for the whole week and then we can hit three trials or two trials at least. And yeah, instead of just down and back for a weekend. Right. That makes sense. So, so real quick, as I mentioned earlier, we haven't touched on a lot of trials. You know, we've done a little bit of shoot to retrieve trial episodes here and there, uh, but we haven't talked too much on actual like AKC field trials. And I don't think we've touched at all on horseback trials. So for, for the listeners and myself as well, kind of break down the setup of the trials. Let's start with the walking trial and just kind of give a brief overview of the rules and, and what's expected and what you're after and the, and the type of dog that is, that is involved in a walking trial. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of brief outline of the trials and Arwen can tell you a little bit more because she does a lot of walking trials, but so, so the trials are really, the, the setup of the trial is basically the same, whether it's walking or horseback. You've got, you know, in, uh, to simplify it, you know, an AKC uh, weekend, we'll call it an AKC weekend trial, you'll have an open shooting dog, an amateur shooting dog, a puppy, and a derby generally. And, you know, the puppy is a 15-month age limit, right? Uh, derby is, is 24 and the amateur and open are any dog over six months old. But, you know, each stage has different, you know, requirements or levels of training that you need to be at. I mean, you can enter if you want, but if you're not at that level, you're not going to do anything, right? Mm-hmm. So, 
So in those stakes, you're going to, you know, most people with the senior dogs, so the open and amateur, they're going to enter both stakes on that weekend. Um, the open stake is a stake that's open to anybody that wants to enter. So whether you're a professional handler or an amateur, uh, you can enter that stake. And an amateur stake, professionals can't enter dogs and run dogs in an amateur stake. So it's just amateurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and those dogs are, you know, basically required to find birds and stand there uh, broke to wing and shot. And and then the judges, you've got two judges that are following, you know, a brace of dogs, which is two dogs around the course for 30 minutes. And, and the judges will basically decide which dogs they liked the best. And it's, it's nothing to do with whether you found, you know, five birds or one bird or, you know, it's not a, this guy found five, this guy found four, that's first, second, third, fourth. It's uh, basically the judge is looking for uh, all kinds of different things, how the dog applies itself to the course, how it handles its game. um, How it looks on its birds. Yeah, how it looks on its birds, style, and and stuff like that, Um, how it responds to its handler. You know, whether the handlers, it's doing it on its own or the handlers constantly screaming at it, trying to keep it, <laughs> you know, going forward or keep it from going, you know, too far or, or backwards. backwards or not far <laughs> enough and stuff. So it's, and, and some people, to be honest with you, some people have a hard time with, you know, they, they see their dog and the way it does and they think that's perfect and they have a hard time when a judge tells them to, that that's not good enough, you know? Well, that's and, kind of all of us in all the realms, you know, nobody yeah. wants to get told that their dog doesn't, doesn't exactly cut it. No matter your, whether you're in a hunt test or field trial or even hunting, you know, you, everybody loves their dog and yeah. they have the best dog. Right. <laughs> and, and I just, uh, you, you just have to be able to understand that, you know, it, every, the judges judge based on what, you know, what they feel or what they think, like they're not judging by this is how it's written. And this is how I, you know, it's written like this. So I'm judging exactly like this. You know, my opinion of what I like to see in a dog is different than Arwen's and it's different than Joe down the street. And, and that's why different people can win every weekend because people like different things, you know, and you, when you see who the judges are, maybe you know well, my, that judge doesn't like the, my dogs, <laughs> or you know. Well, I was just gonna ask. So, how with, with it being so subjective, depending on the judge and and you know a judge by judge basis, how much politics really falls into the trial world? Well, there's probably some. I mean, you you can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. But I think for the most part, it's it's pretty much on the up and up. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's a subjective thing though. Yeah. Because one judge will like a dog that runs really big, another judge not so much. You know, one judge will put a premium on bird work and bird work being perfect, and another one wants a bigger running dog and the bird work isn't as important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they, they maybe don't put as much emphasis on, you know, whether your dog's feet stay flat on the ground through everything as opposed to, you know, where it's going and 
and how it's getting to where it's going and stuff like that. Right. Like it's, that's the thing about trials is there's a lot of emphasis put on the whole picture, the overall picture, how the dog runs, how the dog moves, um, you know, the, the places it goes, this and that. And it, and you got, got to get your mind away from, did my, you know, my dog pointed that bird perfect. Why didn't it win? Yeah. It, it's not just about the pointing of the bird. There's everything else that goes into it. You need, you need a little bit of character and flash in the dog to, to really be successful along with the, the quality bird work and, and all that other stuff that we actually train for. You need that dog with just a, that X factor, right? Yeah. So, it, all right. So, is there any other difference? You said that the horseback and walking trials are really kind of set up the same. It's just you you happen to be on horseback instead of walking. Is there any other differences that we should touch on before we move on? Um, you know, there's not huge difference other than walking is probably a lot easier to start out in because you don't need so much equipment. And the yeah. price point is a lot lower. You basically, you need yourself, you need your dog, a tracking collar, ideally, and a starter pistol. Yep. Now, I was just about to ask that is, you know, the people here, here field trials and their brain might immediately go to horseback trials and that automatically increases the barrier for entry to where somebody's like, crap, I just got my first dog. I don't have a horse yet. I don't have a horse trailer or anything like that. I'm still trying to train my dog, let alone train a horse. So, Walk us through for for somebody that's brand new to this what they absolutely need to have to let's again start with the walking trial because you said that that's that's easier to get into uh, for for the beginner. Yeah, and that is I, the first one I ran in was a walking stake. Um, so, and the nice thing about going to a walking trial is if you're just trying to learn, you can actually walk a lot of the 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 braces. And that's the best way to learn is just really get out there and walk, watch what people are doing, how they handle their dogs, what their dogs are doing, ask questions to the people around you. And it's a lot easier to start there than to start in a horseback field trial. And the other thing is you don't, you're not worrying about the horse when you're running your dog. And I would say, you know, it's easier for your dog because a lot of people will show up and if they show up to a horseback trial, they want to ride a horse and maybe their dog's never seen a horse. So that can really confuse the dog, shut the dog down. Some of them handle it really well, but others are just, you know, where did my owner go? Right. I hear them. I don't see them. (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) so do you generally do most people that do one or the other trial, do they do both with the same dog or, or do you really have different lines and different types of dogs that really excel at walking and really excel at horses other than maybe the exposure factor you just described? Um, there are quite a few people that do both. I think generally if you're walking, you probably want to see less range on your dog because you want it to be at a suitable distance to somebody that's on foot. Mm-hmm. I would say if you're walking, you probably want your dog to be broker because it's going to take you longer to get to a dog on point than if you're on a horse. Yeah. You know, if it's way to the front and it goes on point, it's going to have to stand there until you can walk to it. You, know, yeah. you don't have a horse that you can rush over to it. Right. You know, so to answer your question a little bit though, like, like Arwen does 
both with the same dogs, right? Okay. Like we don't, you know, we don't have, you know, this, these are our walking dogs and these are our horseback dogs. And Arwen does all her dogs. Like they, they've won both trials, horseback and walking. Do they naturally kind of figure out, uh, you know, do they, do they hunt or trial different based on whether it's walking or, or horses? Like, I guess what I mean by that, if they see you're up on a horse, do they know, okay, I need to range a little further out today. Do they just naturally figure that out? Kind of like a dog dogs naturally figure out, you know, ranging to cover when hunting and so on and so forth. Yeah. I think the good ones do like a good dog should adjust to, to you and to the terrain that it's in. So I do find that my dogs tend to run bigger when I'm on horseback as opposed to when I'm walking. Mm-hmm. So, and, and also like, uh, when you're, when you're doing horseback trials or, or even training on horseback, you know, you basically one of the big things we want our dogs to do is continually go forward. Yeah. And, and when you're on a horse, you're keeping up with them faster and they, they want to go forward and they know that you're, you're closer, you know, you're there, you're there, you're always there. Right. So yeah. they can keep going. Whereas when you get on foot, they might get way out there and say, Hey, they're gone. I better go back <laughs> and see what's going on. And then, you know, they start shortening up. Right. Yeah, right. Loopy then. Yeah. <laughs> well, kind of like what Arwen was describing earlier. If you, if you're interested, you can go to these walking trials and walk along with them. You, uh, you know, you're just going to kind of stay in, in the gallery back behind. That's the only actual field trial I've been to. Uh, is I walked some AKC walking trials. And I, other than that, I've only been to hunt tests and, and a little bit of shoot to retrieve here and there. But, you know, when I did the walking trial a few years ago, just walking with them, it, it, it was kind of, you didn't see a lot of the dogs. Like you had, you had the spotter or the judges up on the horses and they would kind of say a dog's on point and then everybody would kind of pick up their pace a little bit and get closer to them. So you didn't really see a lot of the dog work from most of the dogs until you got up to them on point. So, you know, and so with horses, are you saying that you get to see a lot more of the dog work, even though they're possibly or really ranging further out? Well, it depends on a certain degree to the grounds because some grounds are more conducive to being able to see further than others. It just depends on the terrain. But the advantage with a horse is that you're a lot higher up. You're, you know, another six feet up in the air so you can see further. So it is a lot easier to see the dogs. Yep. But it's a a definite advantage to be, you know, on a horse to see your dog and see what's going on. There's, you know, no... No questions about it there. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so let's just go ahead and, and jump in. You know, I'm sure that you guys as trialers, you've heard it from, from other people. You, it, it's kind of like you get one or the other a lot nowadays. You have trialers, but then you have hunters. And for some reason, the hunters describe trialers as really using dogs that they quote unquote just don't trust in the hunting field or don't enjoy hunting behind in the field. And a lot of it comes down to that range. You know, how, how does these field trials and their range and how these dogs act really translate into the hunting field for you guys? (laughs) I mean, I, we've hunted our dogs, you know, and I've hunted all, all my dogs. We hunt our dogs every year. We hunt them on foot. (laughs) We hunt them on horseback. 
you know, depending on where we're going, we have some places we can go with horses and, and hunt on horseback. And that's a lot of fun because it's, you know, we can, we can cover a field with on horseback with two dogs in about 45 minutes that we could, it would take us two and a half, three hours to walk. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, and stuff, but I mean, it's not always a conducive, maybe weather wise or, you know, where you're going, there's too many fences to make it, you know, worthwhile to yeah, be on a horse, not, right? It's not feasible in some yeah. It's just not feasible, but, but we, we have, um, we had one place there. We, we haven't been to it for two or three years now there. The guy sold the land, but we had sharp tails, Hungarian partridge and pheasants. And we go down there every year with our dogs and, and we'd hunt two or three days there and just, let them roll through the hills and we never lost a dog. I don't think ever. I mean, we have, you know, we put tracking collars on them, but we never got to the point where we were searching for dogs ever. Right. And yeah. And they, they just learned to, they just learned to hunt with you and At your they're pace. just out there rolling and hunting and finding birds. And, you know, you walk over a hill, you haven't seen him for a bit and you see him standing there on point. <laughs> you know, that's kind of what I want to see as opposed to, you know, I don't want to see my dog a hundred yards in front of me just to see him go on point. I just want to find him standing somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's really ultimately what it boils down to is your preference, right? You know, if, if yeah. you like, if you, like you said, if you like just coming over the hill and being surprised, like, oh, there's the dog on point. Cool. Uh, but a lot of people, you know, they, they, want a dog that works closer because they want to watch it the whole time and, and and i get that too so for for really a point of reference you said that you have a tracking collar on them just give us what's your dog's typical range when you're out hunting you know what what do they stay at depending on the cover on the prairie or as opposed to maybe the grouse woods you know what 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 range are you working with i don't know what do you think like four or five hundred yards probably three three four five hundred yards most of the time, maybe sometimes they they get going going a little bigger, but um, the thing is, you want them to cover the ground that you're not walking over. So yeah. I'd rather my dog went up and down the coolies, and I'm only going to go there if there's a bird there. Right. Yeah. That, so that one place we had to hunt, we uh, it was huge, huge prairie coolies along the Milk River Ridge. So I don't know how deep the coolies are, but, you know, we'd walk along the top of the coolie and the dogs would go up and down, up and down and hunt the coolie and they'd find birds some, you know, sometimes down on the bottom and you'd have to go down there, but you know, you're not the one doing the up and down, right? <laughs> yeah. Unless you had to and, and stuff. And it's, uh, that's exactly like Arvin said, that's the way I look at it too. If I'm going to walk through a field, uh, I'm just going to walk in a straight line and, you know, the reason I got the dog is they can cover the, you know, the entire, entire field without me having to, to go, you know, make a hundred yard pass or every hundred yards back and forth. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm, I'm going to just go ahead and throw this question out there because I know there's a listener out there thinking it right now and you, you all have heard it. I know. So I, I, I already know your answer. I'm pretty sure, but I'm just going to throw it out there anyway. When your dogs are ranging four or 500 yards out, you know, how do you know 
<laughs> if the dog isn't busting birds when they're out of sight, right? It, that that's what the main thing I hear a lot of people saying that they don't want a dog that ranges too far because they can't trust them to hold the bird that long. That they have they haven't done their training. Yeah. Yep. That's why you want your dog to be trained and to be broke because then you, not that they were not ever going to bust a bird, but the probability is a lot less if you've done your work. Right. And so instead of fighting genetics, trying to range your dog in because you may not quote unquote trust your dog or on birds, uh, you know, you need to play to your dog's genetics and just train them up the right way. And they should hold and stand for the bird the, the entire time. And I really think that that's ultimately the biggest takeaway from the field trials and the benefits that you guys get out of your dogs. Oh yeah. I, to be honest, yeah, I've never worried about, and, and I, and I guess, you know, it's something to do with the way guys, how guys look at hunting is, you know, I, I'm never out there with the thought of, you know, oh, he busted that bird. I can't believe it. Like, I'm, you know, I didn't get a chance at that bird. It's like, you know what? There's more birds out here. Just keep hunting. Like, it's <laughs> it's not the end of the world if a bird flies away. It's just not. Yeah. Keep on rolling. Keep on rolling. And but But when you've done your training and and the dog will stand there i mean they'll stand there 15 20 minutes longer even as long as the birds don't leave right and sometimes the dog gets on point and after a while the birds just get nervous and they leave and that's yeah the way it goes and uh, so a lot so of times really, the dog still won't leave yeah uh, and so I've seen that, I mean, uh, w from a few trial dogs, I've only been to one trial, but I've seen, seen a, a few trial dogs to where it's just like, they, they don't want to leave that site with the bird. You know, if, if for, if for whatever reason, like the owner's trying to call them off, they're, they're a little bit more stubborn than maybe some of your NAVDA or hunt test dogs of coming off that bird. Uh, but before we go into the training, I, I want to ask like, where, where do you think the sentiment comes from? Like I've, I've heard from other trialers that their biggest pet peeve that they hear from people is you can't be successful on both, both uh, sides of it. You can't be successful at trialing and hunting. It's kind of one or the other, but you guys do both. You're successful at both. Why do you think that, that kind of stigma exists right now between a lot of, a lot of opinions and I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I wonder if they're thinking more about the all age dogs, which are the bigger ranging dogs because I would say that it's probably a lot more difficult to hunt with that type of dog on foot. You mm -hmm. know, that dog is probably would probably do better at a field trial than hunting. But you know, that being said, I do know people that hunt their all age dogs. Mm -hmm. You know, like the, I mean, the trainer I use, he runs lots of all age dogs and they go hunting every yeah. year and he's yeah. on foot in the chucker Hills. So you know, maybe for the average person, that's a bit too much dog, a bit too much range for them to just go hunting. <laughs> right. And I was, I was kind of thinking maybe it's kind of a, a, a thought process of there's only so much time. There's only so much bandwidth. So maybe if you're busy, you know, hunting and, and scouting and getting ready for the hunting season and, and all that, maybe you don't have enough time to go trial and, and vice versa. You know, maybe it's a one or the other kind of selection for the average person as opposed to being able to do both. I, you know what? You could be quite right there. Cause I mean, that, that, that's us in a nutshell, you know, our, 
our uh, bird hunting season basically opens Labor Day weekend up here. And pheasant season opens October 15th. And every year in pheasant season opening, we're in Eureka, Kansas. Like we don't get to hunt pheasants till November. Right. And we miss out a lot of hunting season, like and, and good weather hunting season as opposed to hunting in the snow, right? Yeah. 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 We miss out on a lot of that because we're, we're gone trialing. We miss out yeah. on a lot of sharp tail season too. A lot of sharp tail season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it only runs the month of October here. Uh, so, so, I mean, there you go. You, you're kind of sacrificing some hunting for, for the trial season, right? Or uh, vice versa, depending on how you look at it, whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that's, uh, if that's really where that stigma comes from. Everybody's saying you can't be successful in both. And it really just comes down to if you want it bad enough, you can do both. Exactly. I mean, you know, we trial, we get lots of trialing in in the spring too, when there is no hunting season. Yeah. You know, so, but, uh, you know, so, if, you, if you enjoy the trialing, you just, that's what you enjoy doing. Go do yeah. it. And, you know, we, we get our moments to go hunting we go hunting and we enjoy it and the dogs do well and the dogs love it. Makes sense. Well, let's, I, I want to get back into the training cause we kind we, we kind of teased it there for a second, but let's get into the training and, and ultimately, you know, how you guys go about developing your, your trial and, and hunting dogs that you personally use. You know, there's co- me coming from the NAVDA and the, and the hunt test world. We probably do a lot of things that you, you guys don't necessarily prioritize or even care about. Whereas you guys probably do some stuff like the styling and so on and so forth that y'all talked about earlier that personally like you know i i probably won't care about so i'm i'm kind of interested and intrigued here to hear about your guys's kind of approach to developing your trial and hunting dogs well quite a bit of it does come down to genetics but Mm -hmm. uh i i train a lot of my dogs and steve actually sends a lot of his to the trainer so we don't always agree on (laughs) <laughs> on the methodology. <laughs> but I like to train my dogs like I do give them some basic obedience because mm-hmm. you can't expect them to listen to you out in the field if you haven't put a foundation in. Right. So, you know, recall is a really important thing for them to learn. And also just to stand still. So with my puppies, I work on standing still a lot when I let them into the house, before I let them out. Before I feed them, there's a lot of standing still until they're released. Mm-hmm. Um, so just basic stuff like that. And, you know, so I like real, to work real quick on the on the standing still, because uh, I kind of mentioned this a few episodes back on the standing still. Do you formalize it while you're doing that or are you just kind of introducing it and planting that seed for later with the woe command? Or do you go ahead and start overlaying a command for that standing still? Um, yeah, I always use a command. Like I'm always telling the dog, you know, whoop is the word that I use. And that means stand still, don't move your feet, you know? And then I I do have other words. I have weight, which is not as strict as, as woe is, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I, yeah, I am using that word right from the get go and I'm using the release right from the get go as well. Okay. So I use a word and a tap on the side. Gotcha. And they're both interchangeable. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so, so they learn that before they're around birds. So ideally when you put them on birds, they already know what that means. Stand still. Don't move my feet. Mm -hmm. 
And so when you're introducing birds, you're you're starting from the second you introduce the birds. You're trying to formalize that standstill and that woe and getting that dog to to not crash in on the birds, I'm assuming. Um, not necessarily. You know, not when they're when they're puppies, it's a lot less formal. When they're puppies, you just want to build drive and you want them to have fun. You yes. don't want to be hammering down on them when they're they're young because you can shut them down and some of my dogs have a softer temperament mm-hmm. and I haven't been able to, you, you can't come down on them right? because they'll just lose their style or shut down. So I try to make it fun at the beginning, but that's always in the back of my mind that this is what we want to get to. And, and some of them just want to stand there and point the bird till it leaves. Yeah. A lot of them, it's, it's just comes natural and you just try to build on that. Yeah. It's that genetics piece. So, so I'm interested is, it, what's your thoughts on the the you know generation old theory on never let your bird dog catch a bird because that's where I, my mind went when you said that you you teach your dog to stand still uh, before you put them on birds is I was I was automatically assuming that's where you're headed so what's your take on that you do you not care or you know that first first introduction or two you kind of let it slide and then you start taking it away what, what's your thought process on bird intro for for a trial dog. Oh, well, I'd say pretty much all of mine have caught a bird at some point in time or other, <laughs> Yeah, yep. <laughs> you know, and when they're, when they're puppies, I'm not that worried about it. You know, I'm not expecting them to stand there. I just want them to have fun. Yep. Um, you know, it's not ideal. I try to not put them in a situation where they're able exactly. to catch a bird, but yes. sometimes it happens. Right. You know, right. yeah, that's, that's the, yeah, that's one of the, the biggest takeaways that I, I would say is, is with people is you gotta, they're, they're just dogs, right? And, and you can try your best to make everything happen perfectly the way you had it planned, but something's always going to go wrong and it's not going to go as planned and you just have to let it go <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> because you know, the, yeah, we're trying to put our dogs in a situation. We don't want them to catch a bird. Ideally, perfect. They never catch a bird in their life. Perfect. Yep. But it happens. The world does not come to an end. Exactly. Because your dog caught a bird. And, um, yeah, you, you try your best to, like Arwen said, to make sure the situation's good. But, you know, you, you pop that bird or you do something and the bird decides it's not going to fly. It's just going to, or it's going to fly right into the dog's mouth. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, I wasn't planning on that. <laughs> well, it happened. You got to roll with it. With it. Yep. Yeah. You got, you have to roll with it. Yeah. Yep. That's dog training. So I, I have to touch on two things with you guys while I have you on is, is I got to touch on two things and that's number one. I do want to touch on the style aspect. And then the second one, I want to talk about retrieving. Uh, So, you know, uh, I hear a lot of the time, a lot of people with trial dogs, they don't put a big emphasis on retrieving. And then a lot of them don't even mess with force fetch or anything like that. Do you guys mess mess with some kind of uh, train to retrieve program? You know, how much emphasis, if any at all, do you put on retrieving in your dogs? Oh, we want our dogs to retrieve. Um, my first and foremost, my thought is what good is a hunting dog that won't retrieve the bird? Mm-hmm. So I want my dogs to retrieve. And secondly, it is part of field trialing. So 
in order for short hairs anyway, in order to finish your dog, you have to have four retrieving points or four retrieving credits. Okay. So your dog has to be able to retrieve in the field. And, you know, I, I'm the same way. I mean, I, I got into short hairs because I like the, you know, the idea that that dog was going to point the bird and I was going to shoot it and then that dog was going to go retrieve it. And, right. and, you know, as much as I love watching them run and watching them point, I want them to retrieve. And, and a lot of them, they need to be force broke. Um, I, I'm fully into the force breaking. I mean, there's, there's a few dogs that will retrieve naturally. Maybe they don't require, you know, much extra training, but the, the force breaking to retrieve is, you know, the best way to go, in my opinion, to get that, you know, that finished retrieve, you know, for when you're in competitions, whether it's, you know, nav, I don't, doesn't really matter whether it's nav to shoot to retrieve anything. Yeah. It just that. formalizes the process. You're going to, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to drill it in. You're going to have the pattern to where you have the same, the same finish and the same handoff and, and so on and so forth, because you do have some dogs that, like you said, have the natural urge, but you know, maybe just making it an, a, an official pattern and formalization it, it, it's required. But going back to where the retrieving falls in the field trial. So I, I want to, I want to touch on that more because the only, again, I've only been to one walking trial and the only retrieving I saw in that is pretty much at the end of the day or after one, uh, a half day or whatever it was. Uh, it was like each, each dog that was chosen out of the brace got to get a, a thrown bird retrieve. They didn't actually retrieve during the trial. Is that how all trials work or do some birds get shot during the trial? The one I went to just had, had the blank shot off and then it, Later on, a couple of dogs got chosen for the retrieve section. How does that really work? So there's a couple of different ways they do it. For most clubs, it's easier just to do the retrieve at the end of the, the stake in the form of a callback. So mm -hmm. usually the judges will pick their top four, five, or six dogs, and only those dogs will get called back to do a retrieve. So they'll plant a bird you'll put your dog on it, they'll shoot it, you'll send the dog to retrieve. Um, and that is by far the easiest for most clubs to manage because it's in a controlled situation, you only need a couple of people to do it. Um, there are some clubs and the Nationals does the same thing where they will shoot the, the bird on course for each dog. So that does require a bit more manpower because you need a couple of gunners. You need a gunner for each handler. You need, mm -hmm. and you get into the, I mean, you, you can imagine nowadays too, is that all the safety issues and liability oh, yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. Right. Yeah. But when I first started, Nick, when I first started doing this in the eighties in Washington, every trial was shoot the birds on course. Mm -hmm. and and basically what we do we did then and this is how we still do it at nationals is they shoot they shoot the first bird you find just for the amateur stake though or for the amateur yeah, stakes right the amateur stake. in in the amateur stake at eureka there's there's so many people there and and all the the pros are basically the ones running it so there's you know there's lots of help so the pros do the gunning and 
they shoot the first bird on the course that you find. And because, because all you're really doing is demonstrating that your, your dog will retrieve. Right. And that it's broke. And that it's broke through the shot. So that's the big thing. So after that, you're better off having, you don't want to kill every bird you find because you want, you know, you want to leave some birds out there too. Right. Yeah. Yep. So you kill the first bird, the dog makes its retrieve. And then after that, you just do the pop gun thing. Gotcha. Right. And, and we used to do that in, uh, all through Washington. When I first started it, we did, everything was kill on course, but it just got to the point where then you need, you know, two more horses and two gunners and, <laughs> um, it's a lot to and, <laughs> and you just, you know, you just start running out of people. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's, it's just easier to do a, a callback at the end of the day. And for the most part, I've never, um, I haven't seen too many thrown birds. Yeah. Um, like even most of the trials we go to, the callbacks are all like a live birds planted. Your dog has to come in and it still has to handle it just like it would, on you know, course. on the course, mm. you got to flush it. That flies, they kill it. You send your dog. Okay. Um, See that, that definitely makes a little bit more sense than the one I saw a few years ago. I mean, the one I saw, they literally, uh, if I remember correctly, they actually wowed their dog and then threw and then shot, shot the, at the bird. Uh, I don't even think they hit it and they still sent the dog after it, but it, it was a nasty weather day. So I don't know if, if that affected it or what, but it was, it was interesting. I went away from there thinking that, you know, that, that was kind of strange to be perfectly honest. Uh, but yeah, the way you're describing it makes a lot more sense with how, well, how it's supposed to be. And, and you know, the callbacks, like the other thing about callbacks is when you're doing your callbacks for retrieve is like, it's a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, <laughs> I mean it is a absolute disaster Classic. waiting to happen, right? The dogs yeah. know it's a setup. It, they know what's going to happen <laughs> when you go in there. Right. And they're keyed up and they're, and so, you know, what the, I guess you got to look at it the way you got to look at it is, 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 are we, are we here to test a dog if it's going to retrieve? Are we here to, to see at what point is the dog going to fail? Are we going <laughs> to test it so hard to find out what its breaking point is? Right. Yeah. So if you have some bad situations, sometimes you just say, you know what, we're just going to throw a bird. I just want to see the dog bring it back. He's already demonstrated that he can stand there through the flight and the shot and the. Yeah. That would be in the case where the gunner missed the bird or something happened that the dog couldn't make the retrieve. Yeah. Then quite often they'll just throw a dead bird after the dog's been through that. Just so that it can demonstrate the retrieving part. Gotcha. And you know, I, I, I can tell you back in 1999, the, you know, the, the year that I had a dog and, and I won the national amateur in, in Eureka. And at that time, what we did was we still had, uh, you know, we killed the first bird on course in the first series. And in the second series, you still had to retrieve. I think that was the last year you had to retrieve in the second series as well. Now you only have to retrieve once in the first series. In the, in the second series, you don't have to retrieve. And I got done my run in the second series and I, I had two, two or three fines, but we couldn't, for whatever reason, we couldn't shoot the birds. So 
at the end of the, when you're done your run, that back then, as soon as your run was over, they brought a bird out and we're going to do it right now. We want to see that dog while it's hot. And, mm-hmm. you know, doing what it's doing when it's hot, not after it's been sitting in the kennel for three hours, right? Yeah. And first first bird flew right over top of the gallery. They couldn't shoot it. <laughs> Go figure. Second bird they missed. You know, and now everything is like, okay, well, you know what? You, you know, and the, the judges like the dog, and you know the judges like the dog, and they don't want to lose it. Yeah. Over something stupid. And they said, Do you want me to if you want, you can just throw a bird and and I hadn't handled it, my dog for quite a while. And I didn't know what she'd do with a throwing bird. She might just go when I throw it. So I said, you know what? I know what she'll do if we shoot another one. And I said, let's shoot another one. <laughs> and and so the, we she did that one or we did that one. The, the gunners, neither gunner put shells in their gun. I heard the, I heard the guns go click. I was like, no. I, I heard the firing pins fall on the empty chambers. And I can hear the gunners go, oh, no. And she stayed, and, they, and the judges said, okay, that's it. We're done. We're going back. We're not doing this anymore. We'll do it later. Oh, wow. Right? So, you know, it's one of those things where it's, you do those callbacks and it, like, it's a disaster waiting to happen. Right. Yeah. So you, you do the best you can to do it as naturally as you can. But at the end of the day, you're just trying to see if the, you know, you want to make sure the dog will retrieve. So, right. All right. Well, now, and, and all that, I'm glad to hear that, you know, there's a little bit more to, to the retrieving section than I, I saw just a few years ago. But but before we start wrapping this up, I, I, I need to touch on the styling section because, like I said, everything that I've been involved with uh, has not really involved style. I mean, there's intensity on point in AVDA and, you know, the, there's different qualifications that you could, I guess, argue falls within in styling. But what I mean by styling, you typically don't see, you know, somebody going up to their dog and, you know, picking up their tail or repositioning them and high, high head, high tail type thing. Uh, so, so really, I guess my question to you is, is, is that just another thing that falls in the trial system as personal preference? That's what everybody likes. Or is there some sort of functionality to it in, in your eyes? I, there, there's no functionality to it. It's, it's, um, you know, it's it's just a, a about having a you know classy, nice looking dog, and mm-hmm. and I would say like you you talk about stroking like that. You can't do that in a trial. That just right. doesn't happen, right? So that's something you you try to do in training, but more than anything, it's a lot of it has to do with breeding. And yeah. Where you're, you know, what lines your dog's coming from, and and I'm not a big, um, like I don't need to see a twelve o'clock tail and a twelve o'clock head. Like some of those dogs look obscene, in my opinion, because they're not <laughs> natural, right? Yeah. Yep. And and there's, um, you know, a lot of dogs. Like when you look at them, it, it's more about intensity intensity than it is style. Yeah. And 
and stuff. And a lot of the dogs will just look better balanced if they have, you know, maybe a 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock tail and a, and you know, about the same head, you know, if their head kind of matches their tail, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, that's pretty good. And the intensity is good. That's all I need to see. I mean, I don't have to have a 12 o'clock head and a 12 o'clock tail at all. Makes sense. Well, you you mentioned you know if, if you if you kind of pick up the tail or or their head in training, is there anything else that you like? What you're saying is you don't really mind too much, but it's more on genetics. Do you do you guys try and curtail that a little bit? Like, do y'all mess with the woe barrel that much? I mean, I know the woe barrel is really a lot of people still do that for the actual benefits with woe. But I'm curious also, uh, a lot of people do a lot of styling on the woe barrel. So I'm wondering if you guys have fallen into that realm also. I haven't. No, I, I use it for the feet. Yeah. You know, just for woe. I don't use it for style at all. You know, I will sometimes stroke my dog up in the field um, when it's on point. But that's about the extent that I, I mess with the style. Like Steve said, I'm hoping that it's more genetic you know, that the dog comes by it naturally rather than me having to train it into the dog. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it's not something you can really, can't really put it there if it's not there. Yeah. 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 Now it makes sense. So we've kind of covered a lot of ground, a lot of areas that I'm not personally experienced with. We haven't touched a lot on, on this podcast. Is there anything else that you guys would say is, is very important in in the trial industry and in the trial world that we haven't touched on yet? Um, well, you know, one thing I was, I keep thinking about is the one, the one old guy, he's, he's still in our club. He's still around, but he's not very active anymore. Is he used to go to a, you know, he'd go to the trial and he'd phone me up after the weekend and he'd say, Steve, you can't believe what happened to me at the trial this weekend. He says, I need to come out and train for it. You know, and and with some bizarre thing that happened with the other dog or the bird, and now he was going to train, you know, for when this happens again. And it's like, Ed, this is never going to happen again. (laughs) And, you know, the biggest thing I can say is you got woe, you got heal, you got come. Mm-hmm. You need to train. Those three things will take care of any situation that you run into in the field. Yeah. You need to train them without the birds. Without yeah. the birds. So you train yeah. them separately and then eventually every, everything comes together. Right. But they need to know that independent of the birds. Right. You know, they understand the basics. Like, Everything we do in field trialing and training and the process is, is based on that basic training and those those major components of that training. And everything comes from that. So, you know, if you only go halfway on that process, well, he comes back most of the time when I call. <laughs> like, it, you're just, you know, you're not going to do well at, doesn't matter if it's NAVDA or anything, right? Well, no, makes sense. Makes sense. 
Well, guys, I had a lot of fun. I love going down di- different avenues with these bird dogs and, and you know, talking about something that I'm not 100% familiar with because it, it, it really just kind of gets me fired up, makes me realize there's so much more to this world that I haven't even experienced with and, and have barely touched on. So there's just that much more to learn on my end. And, and I, thank you guys for coming on and kind of sharing your experience and talking dogs and, and the trial circuit as well as how it translates into the hunting field because – uh, I think it's an important topic that maybe you don't hear enough about it anymore. And, uh, you know, it, it's really a traditional thing that's been around for generations and, and hopefully more to come. Yeah, we, we sure enjoy it. And I would encourage people to go out and, you know, do the, we happen to do the horseback stuff, but Arwen does a lot of walking stuff and all our locals trials now are pretty much all walking and uh, stuff. And it, it gets new people going and, mm-hmm. You know, it's fun. Yeah, and I would add to that that the people that I've met have been, you know, incredible. Um, Of all the different dog sports that I've tried, I would say the people in field trialing have been the most helpful, generous, you know, people. When I started out, I was sleeping in my truck. People were lending me horses. People were helping me with training. Like, you know, it's just I feel like they're my second family, really. Love it. I, I, I really think that that's kind of, that's just dog people in general and everybody that, you know, you kind of find kindred spirits and no matter what circuit or, or type of dogs that you get into, you're going to find people that enjoy it for the same reasons that you do. And at the end of the day, it's the dogs that bring us all together and re- the reason why we're out there. And, and like you said, Steve, just remember, have fun with it at the end of the day. That's what ultimately what matters. That's all you can do. You just cast your fate to the, to the hills and Away you go. You cannot, because once you turn them loose, you cannot control what's going to (laughs) happen. Yep, that's it. Yep, absolutely. I agree. And I appreciate it again. And uh, we'll check back next time. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just after replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.